Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey, tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? In the crowds, they said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word, the grass withers and the flowers fade. So if you are not there already, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Let me pray as we get started. Our God in heaven, you are worthy. You are, you are worthy of every uh, praise that we can offer to you uh, this morning and throughout our lives. Um, we recognize that we are feeble and our attempts uh, at that at times are uh, weak and lacking. And so God, we praise you, that you are a God who, who meets us in those times of lacking and weakness. So God, now I pray as we begin this week of Holy Week uh, with the passage of our King's arrival, that we would be reminded of the great victory that we have uh, through Christ and in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I was moved by what the senior pastor uh, Chad Shrugs of Covenant Pres in Nashville said this week, the day after his nine-year-old daughter was shot and killed, and it's just one sentence, really short, really appropriate. He says, through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will, who will raise her to life once again. Now that's a resurrection hope. That, that, that's a man who believes that because Jesus rose from the dead, his little girl would be raised as well. And furthermore, he believes his king, Jesus, is coming again to wipe away every tear from every eye and to banish evil forever. And in light of this, Palm Sunday, which is what we're remembering today, is to be a day of great rejoicing because it reminds us that our king has come. And, and the idea of a king that has come and has conquered our three great enemies, which are Satan, sin, and death, should be a comfort to us because we know the end of the story. We know that the hope of Easter Sunday is coming, and that hope reminds us that our king will return and when he returns, he will make all things new again. And so we get a foretaste of what that sort of entry will look like in today's text in an earthly sense. 
And thinking about the cultural context in which the people uh, were in when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem that day, their excitement was built upon this kind of innate desire to see justice invoked in their day. And they believed that Jesus was the man that would start such a movement, that he was the one who could accomplish this. And this is not a wrong expectation to have. They were being mistreated. They were suffering injustice. And it's understandable for them to think like this. But it was a misplaced expectation they had in Jesus to relieve them of such hardship. A real misunderstanding of what Jesus had come to do. So they interpreted redemption as deliverance from a foreign oppressor, someone outside themselves, when Jesus came to redeem us from ourselves. The oppressor is within us, not outside of us. So he came to rescue you from a far greater oppressor, and that is your own heart. And so Palm Sunday marks the beginning of the Acts that worked this out for us. Palm Sunday also marks the beginning of what we uh, know as uh, on the Christian calendar as Holy Week. And I like Holy Week and I like Lent because it weaves the reality of Easter into an entire season, much like Advent does, instead of just one day, that Easter Sunday that we all uh, celebrate and get ready for. And then you have Holy Week, which makes us pause at the significant moments in the final days of Jesus' life before his resurrection. It puts us, you could say, imaginatively amongst Jesus and his disciples as they walk to this road uh, in real time. And it also lets us know, starting today, that there are only a few days before Jesus is to suffer a brutal death on the cross. So there's a lot of hope in each of these movements during Holy Week because every one of them shows us Christ's passion for the will of his heavenly Father as he moves closer to the cross to die for sinful humanity. And that means there is a lot of hope in Holy Week that we need to meditate upon, that we need to think about during this week. So I said this last year, but the days, just to tell you what the days are like during this week. So today is Palm Sunday. This is Jesus entering triumphantly into Jerusalem, like Wyatt just read for us. Uh, Monday and Tuesday are Holy Monday and Holy Tuesday. Uh, There's not really a whole lot of explanation. I think they just were like, we don't have any other names, so we'll just call it that. Um, Wednesday is known as Spy Wednesday because we remember Judas' betrayal of Jesus. He was the spy amongst the disciples. Uh, Maundy Thursday commemorates the institution of the Lord's Supper, Uh, when Jesus has his last supper with his disciples. And then we have Good Friday, where we we remember the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus. And then on Holy Saturday, we remember the time that Christ spent in the grave before we remember and celebrate the triumphal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on Sunday. So that's Holy Week. So today we begin this meditation by looking at this Palm Sunday text from Matthew's Gospel that reminds us that Jesus, God incarnate, our our, our King, is taking his final steps on earth as he moves toward the danger of the cross. 
So I want us to look at this scene in three ways today so that we can see why uh, Christ's entry, the king's entry into Jerusalem is so consequential to us as Christians, but also to the world. So three points today. One is the king's approach. Two is the king's entrance. And three is the crowd's response. How does the crowd respond to all of this? So first, the king's approach. So this may not seem significant here in verse 1, but we need to see that in, that in light of what Jesus was approaching. This is how we have to kind of view it, because after 33 years, Jesus draws closer to the final part of his physical life on earth. He knows it is about to happen. He knows which direction that he is going toward. As he enters Jerusalem, he is approaching his suffering and his death. Remember, Jesus isn't being forced to this task either. Some like to claim that the suffering and death of Jesus was, uh, quote, cosmic child abuse. That for some reason they believe that, that God gets some sort of joy out of killing his son. Author Stephen Chalk is one of those who teaches this. He, in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, he writes, just so you know, there is no lost message of Jesus. Okay, You have it in your Bible. It's right there. It's not lost. Uh, but he says this in, in his book. Uh, a, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. But this we know to be a ridiculous claim. Simply by listening to Jesus' own words, his, answers, his answer to this, when he says, in the immediate context of chapter 20, verse 28, he says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then even more explicitly in John's Gospel, chapter 10, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, this is not the language of a helpless victim, but the language of God the Son willingly laying down his life for us because of his love for his people. And this approach into Jerusalem is proof of this. But even more evidence for this is found in our second point, where we see the king actually entering into his city. Look at verses 2 and 3. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now this entrance into Jerusalem is better known as the triumphal entry. That might be the title of that section in your Bible. Uh, and even though it doesn't seem like anything triumphal is accomplished, no war has been won, 
Uh, No king has been officially crowned, which were all actions that would call for such an entrance like this. Yet Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was pregnant with these two actions. He would be triumphant over his enemies. He would be crowned king, but not in a way many would think he would. And that all begins with his entrance here into Jerusalem. So when an earthly king would return to his kingdom after a great military victory, he would come thundering in on his great war horse, usually uh, marching in at the head of his troops who have just conquered their enemies on behalf of their kingdom. But in contrast to this, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. And this doesn't strike our hearts as a great and triumphant entry of a king. It's, it's sort of underwhelming. I mean, the people following him into Jerusalem is this ragtag bunch of people, not a great and conquering army. So there must be something more to this, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus died in accordance with the Scriptures, Uh, and and that he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul is saying, um, Jesus did all of these things in accordance with what the Bible teaches us. They didn't have the New Testament at that time. They had the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament. That was their Bible. So Paul is saying, Jesus died in accordance with what the Old Testament texts tell us about Jesus. He did exactly what it says. And so here in our text, we can say that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in accordance with the Scriptures. And because this is happening in accordance with the Scriptures, it is the reason we can say that Jesus' unusual entrance is actually very significant. Because this is happening in accordance with Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that Matthew quotes in verse 4. He says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And all of this we see in the simple gesture that begins at the end of verse 1, when Jesus sends two of his disciples into the village on a seemingly odd errand to fetch a donkey for him. But all of it was in order to fulfill this particular prophecy in Zechariah 9. So what is the prophecy about? Well, the first part of the prophecy says, Say to the daughter of Zion, which tells us that this prophecy is addressed to God's people. It's a reminder message, you could say, from the prophet for God's people to keep their eyes pointed forward as they await the arrival of their true king. The king is coming, Zechariah is saying. Keep your eyes open to that. And so Matthew is telling his readers that this was taking place right now in Jesus' actions of asking for this donkey. So the fuller patches that we heard read earlier has a little more spice on it, as you heard Terry read it. But if 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 you can find Zechariah again, turn there with me. Mine's marked, so I'm cheating a little bit, but... But Zechariah 9 is where Matthew is pointing us to. Zechariah 9.9 says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here's this this beatific proclamation from 500 years before being fulfilled in the midst of the people of God in real time. Here is that king on a donkey. He's here. So a couple of things that Matthew mentions from Zechariah's prophecy that need to be highlighted here. One is your king is coming to you. Whose king is coming? Well, if you remember back in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 8 and 9, uh, the people of God demanded a king for themselves. And why did they do this? Well, it's because they wanted to be like the other nations. They didn't necessarily want to be ruled by a king. Um, They just wanted a human king so that they didn't look different. They didn't look set apart. They didn't look weird. So in, 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 in wanting a human king, they reject God as their true king. And now here in our text, Matthew is telling us that God's people's true king is coming to them the king that they have always desired, the king that they have always wanted, the king that they have always kind of longed for is coming to them. So essentially saying, remember when your ancestors wanted a king? Well, here he is. The true David's here. The true Solomon is here. The true king of God's people that they didn't know they already had is here. So I wonder this morning, what kind of king are you presently looking for? Because we all have something that is ruling us, right? And and some of us in this room are looking for something that we can uh, have rule us, that we can have uh, hope in. What kind of king are you presently longing for? Is it in a celebrity? Or your own celebrity? It could be that too with Instagram and everything. Is it in your husband or wife? Are they king for you? Or in your hope for a husband or wife? Is it in health or a long life? Is it uh, it maybe in the perfect plan for your life? If all of these things line up, then we will be happy. Then we will be comfortable. But whatever or whoever it is, it will always come up short. It will always leave you wanting. Some of you right now are feeling that, that, that feeling of of wanting right now. Your your king or whatever you have set up in your life as your king has disappointed you once again. And so you're wanting. But let me just say that the true king, King Jesus, will never leave you wanting. He'll never do that to you. Jesus is the only one who can say and does say, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Think about those kings that you have set up in your mind right now. Can they carry your heavy burdens? Is their yoke easy? Is is the yoke that, that they make you carry, is it light? And I can guarantee you it's not. But Jesus says, come to me who have these heavy burdens, Put them on me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
So the second highlight from Zechariah is that he tells us the character of this king is humble. And this is not humble in the gentle sense, but humble in the lowly sense. Jesus refers to himself in this way in Matthew eleven twenty nine when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So the word humble here also carries with it the meaning uh, full of suffering, which we see depicted in places like Isaiah 53 that says this in Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, just to give you a taste. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So this is not the picture of a king that we have in mind, is it? Not someone uh, many would want to follow. A king is supposed to demonstrate strength and power and at some level, some sort of intimidation, fear. Yet the king that Zechariah described is a king who will suffer, be humiliated, and die. And the way we can tell this, this is by the action that Jesus takes at the end of verse 7. The way that we can tell that this is what, uh, that Jesus is the one that Zechariah is, is speaking about is what happens for us in verse 7 when Matthew tells us he sat down on their cloaks. It's much like what we hear in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Uh, Jesus had, when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, the author of Hebrews tells us, he sat down. And in, and in this sitting, he is declaring himself the humble king. In his sitting, Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Now, if you are not a Christian, here is a reason that you should begin to investigate Christianity more seriously today. A prophecy made 500 years prior is being fulfilled by this man, Jesus. And that should at least pique your curiosity into who this man was. That should be a, 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 at, the, at the least tell you that Jesus is more than just a mere man or a great moral teacher. This is the same argument that the Apostle Paul kind of uses in Acts chapter 26 when he is speaking to the king. He's speaking to King Agrippa about the gospel message. And he says this, they thought Paul was crazy, so Paul begins, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. True and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, meaning the, 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 everything about Jesus, his death and resurrection, none of these things have escaped your notice. For I am persuaded, none, for this has not been done in a corner. This was not a quiet action that took place when Jesus died and was resurrected. King Agrippa, Paul asked, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. So Paul here appeals to the scriptures. He appeals to the prophets to prove that the words he's speaking about Jesus are true and rational, meaning they make sense. 
So many times we want to find evidence outside of the Bible to prove that the, that the Christian message in the Bible is true, which is, I think, a fine thing to do. There's lots of people doing good work in that way. But I think the danger in that is that we tend to downgrade the Scriptures to, to more like a secondary source, uh, which could be true or not true, depending on what evidence we find for it. But the thing that we should be doing instead is that we should be running to the Scriptures first and putting its claims about itself to the test. And I'm confident it will pass the test with or without outside evidence. Because no matter how you look at it, by by mounting the donkey and riding it into Jerusalem, Jesus is making a bold statement here. He is claiming to be the Messiah. So in his essay, uh, What Are We to Make of Jesus?, C.S. Lewis addresses these claims that Jesus makes about himself. A lot lot of doubters during C.S. Lewis's day, and a lot of uh, doubters during our day as, as well. But Lewis says this, quote, In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from the form of delusion, which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you are a poached egg when you are not looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you think you are God, there is no chance for you. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. It was either one extreme or or the other. It was never in the middle. So we get a taste of this in our final point, because not only does this prophecy prove Jesus to be who he claims to be, we have eyewitnesses in the crowd who confirm this for us as well, and we see it in the way they respond to Jesus' entrance in verses 8 through 11. Look there with me. Says this, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut uh, cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!" And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, "Who is this?" And the crowd said, "This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee." So if you're in town this week, uh, you will deal with crowds, whether that's traffic or you'll, uh, you'll go to the tournament and you'll deal with the crowds that are there. Um, but if you do go to the tournaments, you will see the crowds that move around like a roving band in unison as they follow their favorite golfer. And even if you don't like golf and you just go because it's, it's, it's a pretty course and you're in Augusta and that's just something that we do around here. So even if you don't like golf, and you're in the midst of those crowds, and you're watching these professional golfers, you'll find yourself getting caught up in the excitement. I don't like golf. And when I go to the Masters, I, am, I find one person, I just root for that person. And I don't even know who it is. But you will get caught up in the excitement, so much so that you might, you, you might do that. You might cheer for a golfer, and you're just going to pick the guy with the mullet because he looks cool. And then you're going to dedicate your life to the sport in that moment. This is so exciting. I love golf because of the excitement of the crowds. 
And we have a similar situation happening here in the text. You already had a crowd that was following Jesus, and now he enters into a major city where word about him has already arrived. Even before he got there, there are people who know about Jesus, and they know that he's coming. So essentially what you have are two crowds converging into the same place. Matthew says the crowds that went before him and the crowds that followed him. So they are converging in in the same place. And these crowds did a few things that tell tell us uh, that they at least understood partly who Jesus was and what he was doing. So the first reaction is the laying down of their cloaks and palm branches on the road before Jesus. So essentially rolling out the red carpet for him. And so he's walking upon these these cloaks and he's walking upon these palm branches. And this symbolized that they understood at least Jesus to be some sort of king that was coming to the city. Not necessarily in the spiritual sense, but a king nonetheless. Someone of great significance was coming. I mean, if the words that we have heard about this man are true, then this is exactly who he is. A second reaction we see from the crowd is in verse 9. That says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So as Jesus enters the city, the crowds were not just cheering, just inaudibly. They They were shouting specific phrases announcing who he is. So the first being, Hosanna to the Son of David. So Matthew, to communicate the messianic significance, uses this title for Jesus in chapter 1, verse 1, when he introduces his gospel. He wants us to remember back to the beginning of the gospel when he says, that when he writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So in the previous chapter, Matthew tells his readers that the two blind men uh, who Jesus heals uses this title for him as well. When they cry out, in their blindness, have mercy on us, son of David. They understood the messianic significance and believed what they've heard concerning Jesus. And the crowd in Jerusalem used, used the exact same title, meaning they also understood in some small way the messianic significance of Jesus. They are proclaiming that this is no mere man, and they confirm this by following these words up with, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So occasionally, I'll send one of my older kids to give some words of wisdom and reprimand to their younger siblings. Um, I'm sending them in my name, so go tell your brother or go tell your sister, uh, this is what I've said, this is what I've decreed for them in their life at this moment, in the name of their father. So the one hearing the words from their sibling, this is what I'm hoping will happen, hearing the words from their sibling needs to imagine that I am say, saying them to the, to this, this to them through their brother or sister. Because I have something to communicate to them. I have something that I want to, uh, to set forward. I have a purpose for them. Because to come in the name of anyone was to come in some sense representing that person and, and, and to come in order to set that person's purposes forward. And here we have the crowds announcing that Jesus comes 
in the name of the Lord. Which means that Jesus comes to set the purposes of God forward. And those purposes are what Jesus has been proclaiming his entire life. He's not just doing it now. Matthew records Jesus' own words in chapter 16, 17, and 20 when he foretells his death and resurrection. He says this over and over again. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And this he will do because of your sins and mine. And this is why he is Hosanna in the highest. No one else could accomplish such a task that would reach all the way to heaven. And yet yet what Jesus is about to do does just that, reaches all the way to heaven. Then in verse 10, it says that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, which literally means the whole city was quaking like an earthquake. The excitement over Jesus was such that it shook the entire city. So much so that the question had to be asked. I love how it's just asked in the midst of all of this, who is this? Who is this? Who is this man that's causing such a stir? Who is this man that is, that is garnering this following of people who are shouting his name and, and saying that he is from the Lord, saying that he is the Messiah? Who is this? It's essentially what the, what the question C.S. Lewis used to title his essay that I read from earlier, which is, what are we to make of Jesus Christ? What are we to make of him? And maybe that's your question today. Who is this man that still provokes such excitement and even controversy a couple thousand years after all of this has happened? I mean, if, if this was anything that was insignificant, I'm pretty sure we would have stopped talking about it hundreds of years ago. So who is this man whom the Old Testament prophets speak of accurately? Who is this man who foretells his own suffering, death, and resurrection to the smallest, minute detail and then walks headlong into it? Who is this man who voluntarily takes on such a thing as the cross, the most brutal form of execution, I think, in the history of the world on behalf of a guilty party? I like the way C.S. Lewis closes his essay. He says this, So what are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. There's no in-between. You either love Jesus or you hate Jesus. So the question I want to leave you to ponder this holy week is this. Do you accept him or do you reject him? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, this is your word to your people this morning. God, I pray that, that we would meditate upon the, the movements toward the cross that Jesus took um, 2,000 plus years ago. God, I pray that we would let the reality of what he has done for sinful humanity uh, rest heavy upon our hearts, that we would see ourselves as uh, getting to the, p- the point where we are, that our sin is so heavy and has brought us so low that we, we can see no other way of escape except through Christ. I mean, your word tells us that the only way to a relationship with you is through Christ. There is no other way. And so I pray for my friends here this morning who don't know that reality, do not believe that reality yet, that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would believe upon Christ and be saved. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray that that the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection would weigh heavy upon their heart this week. That they would be reminded anew and afresh of this great gospel message that we would be, again, swept up in it and be changed by it. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.